0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Jonah Oliver, the performance coach. Jonah helps elite sports people and high-performance individuals in the commercial world get the most out of their ability and deal with performing at a high level under stressful situations. I think you'll agree with me that many of the behaviors that high performers face and the traits of successful investors are common. The dealing with stress uh, and making great decisions during those pressure filled situations is extremely valuable. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Joan Oliver, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me. Well, maybe you can kick away for our listeners and Give us an introduction and let them know who they're about to hear from.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, Joan Oliver, I'm a performance psychologist. Uh, I'm predominantly working in elite sport around the world and also in the corporate sector. Performance psychologist. What does that mean? Yeah, great question. Uh, I help people focus on the right thing Mm. at the right time. So I can't make anybody more talented. Mm -hmm. I can't make you better at golf in terms of your, you know, God-given talent, can't make you more knowledgeable of the market forces as an investor, but I can help you focus on the right thing at the right time. And that often means getting out of your own way. Yep. And and with the aim of improving performance, I take it? Yeah, sustained high performance. I think everybody at times is capable of doing great things, but really it's the sustainability
0: of that over time. Now, it's really interesting... You know, this is a podcast series that talks to the leading minds in wealth management, and we've sort of had a lot of investment-centric guests, and we've had a few in this area of performance and uh, decision making, and sustained high performance, and dealing with that sort of environment that allows people to operate at their highest level. And it's interesting that you and I want to. I'll come back to this in a moment. The, the similarities between the genres, if you'd like, in which you you provide services to. Um, you talked about golf there, and, and you know, I, it was fortuitous how we met. I was lucky enough to be on the, the sidelines or outside the rope, if you'd like, um, trailing around Cam Smith, and, um, you know, one of your clients, you know, most people would know um, Cam Smith, the, the, the famous Australian golfer who's um, moved – moved over to live, people will realise, and, and also, you know, won the British. He was the past champion of the British Open. Um, how did you come to um, be part of Cam's overall performance team?
1: Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, an, it was a good interaction, bumping into you there on the, on the ropes, watching, watching some golf. Look, I, I, I joined Cam's team, I'm thinking it might be about five years ago. He was about 65 in the world. And obviously wanted to see how high you could get, which in and of itself, I love the challenge of that. Like fixing up somebody who's struggling or underperforming, that's bread and butter. And I like that work too. But that's that's somewhat um, perfunctory compared to taking somebody who's already damn good at what they do. And they say, I want to get even better. There's a lot of, a lot of complexity and challenge, which I really like. So I joined Cam's team about five years ago through his coach. I'd already done some work uh, with some other athletes that you know had overlapped with his coach and he sort of maybe spent six months planting the seed in the background. Cam, to his strength, is good at filtering noise, uh, so he has a very small team. It is literally his coach and me and his physical trainer. And you know, wow, because
0: you do see and hear of you know these whole entourages travelling around and lots of noise and externalities, and you you wonder with a lot of these sports people when you see some of the behaviour or the outcomes, mm. who do they have have in and around them? So that's a tight team.
1: Mm. Yep, it's nice, nice tight team. We pursue simple brilliance. You know, don't don't need to chase shadows. Just do the 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 basic things really really well on repeat. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, one of the things I hear over and over again with elite sports people. And I'll try to draw some parallels here to high performance investors and money managers as well, which I think is another large part of the cohort of clients that you have. Mm. Um, I keep hearing that, you know, there are some similarities in terms of, um, well, sorry, I'll I'll go back. They keep talking about a lot of these elite sports people that the physical ability is one thing, and those that succeed or have prolonged success or get to the get right to the top, it's actually what's between the ears that separates them. Where do you think that interplay is for someone like Cam and people right at that top level? Um, you know, h- how much of it is mental versus you know God-given talent? Yeah. they just happen to hit the golf
1: ball really well. Yeah, it's it's somewhat of an intellectual exercise because there's always uh, the intersection of both. You know, you normally have to have some degree of, of a prodigious talent mm-hmm. and you might have a little X factor where you can just do something just a little bit better than others. So I'd never minimize, but yeah, generally what we see across all, um, certainly in the sporting sector, like I think of someone like a Roger Federer, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the fastest serve. The fastest backhand, the hardest volley. He's not the fastest around the court. He doesn't have any actual one weapon other than his ability to put that all together and continue to play consistency when the context changes, when the you know when the pressure really shows up. He's still willing to play the right brand of tennis where others will go for either shortening up the rally, playing the big shot, or getting tentative and you know underperforming. So, you know, when we look at the golf, for example, you know most. Men and women at that level, there's probably a thousand or more around the world who all have great accuracy and distance and length and club head speed and can play all the shots. It's just very few can do it when it matters. Very few can maintain the consistency of, you know, their practice golf, their Tuesday golf, and can they do it on a Sunday? And that often comes down to their willingness to sit with the discomfort that it inherently comes intrinsically, you know, we'll get a bit psychological here, mm-hmm. you know, when that context changes, you know it's Sunday, you know it's the British Open, you know it's the Olympic final, you know it's Wimbledon. But can I then make room for the inevitable you know, discomfort and story in the brain that comes with that and still maintain behavioural outputs that, you know, do reflect my normal talent? So it's how much they don't change often.
0: And Jonah, what is your background in the industry? Do you come from a a uh, psychology
1: background, a uh,
0: sports science? What's the history? Yeah,
1: uh, well, both of those. I, I did a double major in, in science and, and sports science and then into psychology and then did postgraduate study in psychology. So yeah, psychologist by training, which you know I, I like to talk around. There's a lot of noise in the industries out here of, of people who are really well-intentioned and often have a few interesting ideas. I guess the benefit I have is I don't need to put out my opinion on things. I simply provide the science. I consult the literature, the journals, uh, and provide evidence-based practice in everything that I do.
0: And do you notice, We I referenced earlier, that part of your cohort of clients is, is corporate and some of that entails some money management, investment people, uh, fund managers, hedge funds, et cetera. Do you notice, is there any similarity here between... The type of issues and performance issues under pressure; those type of people have with those in the sporting part of it of your client base. Yeah, identical. and if so, what they are? So, yeah. Okay, uh,
1: you know, hundred percent overlap on the Venn diagram um, because we all have a brain. We all have, you know, perfectionism, high standards, unrelenting standards at times, um, and we're emotion governed animals, which means we're very prone to being pulled around, if we're not careful, by what's going on intrinsically in terms of our own emotions versus using the facts, the data, what's in front of us. So there's no different than a golfer having a soft bogey on one hole and feeling really pissed off and then walking onto the next tee and trying to crank a drive to effectively make themselves feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should have been a three wood, and should have been just you know put yep. down the middle. But they 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 dial it up a bit more because they're trying to fundamentally do something good to compensate for feeling crappy. Mm-hmm. No different than when we make a decision, uh, we invest some money somewhere. It doesn't you know return what we wanted. We're feeling a little bit like we didn't get that dopamine you know response, uh, and we get a little bit into higher risk decision making potentially, even though we may not realize it because it's more of a subconscious. But we're chasing a result. We're not willing to sit with the discomfort that, okay, the last couple of decisions didn't pay off in the short term or even the long term. And that's okay. That's the price of entry. Like, you know, it's almost like a golfer who is willing, to, very willing for birdies to occur, but completely unwilling for bogeys to occur. Well, as you'd know in, in, in the finance sector, you know, you've actually got to be willing for an awful lot of decisions sometimes to not go your way, but not then let that influence future decisions.
0: So how do the the best performers continually perform in high pressure situations? Yeah.
1: There's a bit of complexity to that. <sighs> Firstly, it's it's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's about building capacity to embrace more. You know, I'll say that again. It's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's building capacity to embrace more. So typically, people who can perform consistently have a slightly different relationship to pressure, stress, anxiety, uncertainty. And it's, a, it's not that they don't experience it. People misinterpret it. Jeez, Cam Smith was so relaxed and calm there. I couldn't believe the final seven holes at the British Open last year. He was so nervous he couldn't even sip water. But he was okay at being in that state because we'd prepared for it. Discomfort was the price of entry. The better he played, the more noise showed up in his brain. But he was very clear in what he had to do. So it's not that he's some freak of nature who doesn't feel anxiety or, you know, worry or that he's not perfectionistic and gets really pissed off. He feels all those emotions and has all those responses. He's just very good at making room for it so it doesn't distract his task-focused attention so he can stay connected. So back to my point, great performers typically don't fight or control or try to suppress or avoid inherent discomfort that comes with pressure. They're good at just making room for it, and that allows them to almost tolerate even more when it shows up.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by making room for it? How, how do they do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the psychological term is um, expansion, mm-hmm. okay, and it's normally around acceptance and diffusion. They're the two technical terms, acceptance it's okay to feel this way. Humans are very poor at that. We constantly want to experientially avoid. So I will get a bit Dr. Phil here. Mm -hmm. Experiential avoidance. Every single day we do it at a, you know, at a, at a small level, even at a large scale, depending on what's going on. For example, there would be listeners here today who may have an interaction in their work setting where somebody had some poppy seeds or spinach in their teeth from their bagel this morning at breakfast and they sort of look at it, they think, oh, I should say something, don't really know this guy, oh, it's, uh. or he'll work it out later, I don't want to embarrass him. Sure, all been there. That's a lie, an absolute lie. You didn't, it wasn't about not making him feel bad. You didn't want to feel bad. Just as you went to say something, you felt that slight rise in discomfort, whatever, anxiety, awkwardness, something, and you went and made a story up in your brain. He'll work it out later, you know, and you avoid that moment. Now, that's a silly metaphor, but we don't tell our partners what we really think. We don't challenge the status quo. We don't sit down with our boss. We don't, you know... Everywhere we have these moments where we experientially avoid when the discomfort comes up. And that's no different than not speaking up when we're feeling nervous or you know, a bit of discomfort. Mm-hmm. But it can also be when we're feeling really annoyed and we've got to yell and kick the dog. That's to get rid of the anger versus just sitting with it. That's why people are quick to anger. People who have anger problems aren't – are got to sit with anger longer. Not feel less of it. I need a holiday journal. I need time out. No, you don't. You need to go hang out with your colleagues that really piss you off and get better at feeling pissed off. You've got a problem with not being pissed off well enough. You've actually got to get used to the discomfort, but not let it define your behavior, which is back to some of that decision making with people in the finance sector who, when you're feeling that emotion about something that's going on with some decisions, it's like, mm-hmm. is that impacting my future decisions or am I doing that you know, free from, from what's in the past? So... Experiential avoidance, you know, that can be on a golf course, you know, taking a, a, you know, a, a less of a club or not taking a certain start line, you know, or it can be taking driver when you don't need to. So it can be, you know, either form, but versus just playing the shot that's required. When people talk about, you know, how amazing some of my clients perform in those spotlights, I go, they didn't play amazing. They played normal. An ordinary performance on a special day. That's what they would have done on a Monday or a Tuesday. It's just they're willing to do it on the final day, on the final hole of the biggest golf tournament in the world, but they're just, you know, they're unwilling to compromise on on how they go about their business. And that's the same that I bring into the into the into my coaching with executive CEOs, finance game, doesn't really matter. Surgeons, Hollywood actors, you know, I have a really interesting portfolio of clients because the human condition is the human condition. So to your question? how do you build that capacity? You've got to learn to embrace and accept the inherent discomfort that comes. You know, we worry about things we care about and sometimes the better you do, the more discomfort that comes. The better my clients go, typically there's more pressure. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. You've made the final of the Olympics well, there's more pressure,
0: right? Yep. S- we, see, we see this with high net worth individuals all of the time. They're, they're the the stress and the worry they have because they're worried about keeping it. They're worried about what their friends will think. They're worried about how, how they're perceived by others. And sometimes you see the people with nothing and they're not worried about any of those things. I see, I get
1: clients with panic attacks and you do some, you know, historical sort of data mining. It's, Oh, they've they've floated the business that's now worth a few bill. They've, you know, ticked that box, they're doing really well, and now they've got all these panic attacks. And it's all just tied into exactly that. The fear of then losing <laughs> what they've created versus versus focusing on what they yeah, you know, what they've got in the journey they're on. So acceptance is about learning to make room for the inherent discomfort that comes by pursuing hard things and the price of entry of doing that. And then diffusion is making room for it. That's that we call it like almost the observing self, you know, like self-awareness and all this sort of cliched stuff you see out there in in the corporate landscape. You know, what is authentic leadership? What is self-awareness? What is emotional intelligence? Like it's just the ability to keep perspective, right? Mm -hmm. We're normally okay if, if we've got perspective. It's when we lose that perspective that we derail. And that's that ability to notice what's going on for you intrinsically so that you don't then get pulled around by it. I'm noticing that I'm feeling a bit of, you know, pressure right now. I'm feeling, I'm noticing a bit of, you know, frustration or a bit of anger. I'm noticing some of my competitive stuff's coming out where I'm feeling like I'm getting into a bit of the gambling mindset where I'm chasing a a short-term win here with some of my, you know, decisions with with, with the fund or what have you. And just that ability to notice versus then, you know, being defined by it.
0: So how do people get better in that area? You know, I, I know... If you want to get fitter, I go and run or I go to the gym. If I want to get smarter, I go to the library or get some lessons or actively do this. If I want to increase my mental capacity, my um, ability to deal with these situations to be able to perform in a normal or
1: better manner,
0: how how do you go about
1: it? Yeah, great question. And there's a couple of elements to that. Firstly, it's not just about going out and doing harder things. That's a critical element. If you want to get fitter, go and run harder, sure. Yeah. But if but what precedes that is to, is connecting to something of importance. Hu- the human brain doesn't like discomfort. You know, we've actually evolved to have a brain that says stay on the couch. Eat the simple carbohydrates and use a remote control so you don't even have to hop up to change the channel. Like conserve calories and, you know, like we, we don't like discomfort. Um, so it's all good and well to say, yeah, embrace discomfort and pursue a life of meat. But, you know, let's talk about how you actually hack that. The first step is truly connecting to the value prop. Like what's actually important here? And I use a lot of playful analogy and metaphor because our brains actually learn through analogy and metaphor and that's why I use it in in my therapy and in my sessions and coaching. And, And the one that I use a lot is if I'm playing basketball on the street with my kids and the ball rolls out and a car comes, I'll let the car hit the ball and I'll apologize to the driver or what have you. But if my daughter or son runs onto that road to get that ball, I am going and I don't care how much that car hits hurt, hits me, hurts me, breaks my bones, kills me, right? Mm-hmm. I don't care about how painful and hard that experience is because I care about how important my kids are. And, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably parents or a lot could maybe relate to that sort of analogy. And what that shows is it's not how hard something is. It's how important something is. And if we stay connected to the importance, we will endure great hardship. We'll, you know, we'll be, be willing to make room for far more pain and discomfort than we even think our brain and our body capable of. But whenever I see people who are avoidant and struggling and not doing the things that they know they should, it's not because they're not motivated. It's because they haven't connected it to something of meaning. So a lot of the work I do is about understanding your values, what matters, and that can be at a corporate level, that can be around strategy, that can be about the vision and the mission. So it can be at a, at a corporate level or at an individual level, really understanding, you know, ambiguity is the enemy, get right in there and understand what matters here. And once you've defined that, then is there a willingness for the price of entry? Which then brings to the second part. Well, then, how do you actually then expose people to get better at sitting with the inevitable discomfort? And yeah, that's why some of those low-hanging fruit, little life hacks you probably see on all the social media channels—you know, ice bars and you know, meditating and exercise—and they all are great things mm-hmm. because they're about exposure to eustress, not distress. So, is it, so it's an important concept: eustress, e-u, eustress is good stress, but that's very much around a personal interpretation, you know, you jumping in an ice bath and you might find it a bit challenging, but you, you sort of want to do it and you're keen to do it and it, you know, elicits these lovely you stress responses, whereas I might be like, I hate ice baths, I hate the cold, and I get thrown in there. It's just distress. So the very same activity can serve a different function for the person but there is some great science that says people who pursue things that elicit a stress response, uh, you know, they're more willing to make, you know, to choicefully seek a bit of discomfort, um, seem to be better at sitting with the inevitable discomfort that comes when you're pursuing a life of meaning. So yeah, I like some of those simple daily habits around finding things that do stretch you a little bit. And then the really easy stuff. Well, I say easy, I should be careful. The simple, simple doesn't mean easy. Mm-hmm. You know, cooking a margarita pizza is really hard. It's only simple <laughs> ingredients, right? Is find those moments that you are wanting to experientially avoid and try to act in a way counter to that. Be the guy or girl who s- tells the colleague you hardly know that they've got some mayonnaise on their face. Be the person who says to a colleague, "Hey, listen, just let me know. you know, just got a bit of bad breath, and you know, you might want to, you know, be that person." And just notice what happens when that discomfort's there and the fact that I can sit with it. And it's not about how they react. They might be offended and be embarrassed or be upset. That's okay. It's not about controlling the outcome. It's about you making a decision. If I say I want to be an honest, congruent, values, you know, congruent person, then look for moments of, you know, avoidance and see if you can, you know, act in a counter way. Again, that then means it's you're developing a different relationship to discomfort. It's got nothing to do with the frequency, duration, and intensity of discomfort that comes by doing hard things. It's your relationship when that discomfort shows up. And if you develop, a, a, I guess, a more familiar, accepting relationship to that discomfort it doesn't then hijack your task-focused attention. And I won't get into the neuroscience of it, but effectively your prefrontal frontal cortex is more freed up to focus on the things that actually matter, i.e. decision-making, reading the data off that computer screen, you know, actually connecting with a loved one over a meal, or how do I hit this, you know, flop wedge over the bunker to, you know, to the pin. It doesn't really matter what the task is. You've actually got the neural sort of bandwidth to then execute.
0: You've dug into a few things there I'd like to, to understand a little bit more. Um, one of those, I interpreted, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, that some of the behavioural things that you can do when you feel these stresses coming on or, or you're in this high anxiety environment um, might be behavioural and these might be routines that allow you to deal with it and focus on the task of hand. Is that kind of right? You mean by like some form of routine or well, system? if I take it, yeah, if I take it for a golfer, you mm-hmm. know, they will often have the same routine and the same methodology and they will rely on that when things get tough so that they feel more comfortable in that process and able to execute. Is that where you're heading in that when you're talking about the behaviours? Probably, uh, Let's
1: – to a point um, – Firstly, let's talk a bit about all humans are um, somewhat addicted to predictability and routine. Mm-hmm. Like we all think, no, I'm really flexible and agile, Jonah, and I say, I bet you woke up this morning and put the same foot on the floor and then you probably either went to the bathroom or brushed your teeth or had a shower in whatever, same order, and then you went to your local cafe and even though you picked up the menu and took two minutes to actually read it again, you still ordered the same poached eggs with cider and and your long black coffee. Right. We, we, we are creatures of habit because by having some habitual rhythms in our lives, it just frees us up from having to think about that. You know, you don't want to actually use cognitive load to think about, oh, how do I get out of bed? Which foot do I put down? Yep. You know, we, yep.
0: I, it, just, I, I love it. I don't know if you've watched the Netflix series Quarterback. Not yet. I've seen and, it. And, yeah. and, and, and that Kurt Cousins features on it. Right. And there's this fantastic scene that I love, where they, you know, they he's in this yellow short sleeve plaid shirt, right? And he's up doing the post game interview. And I don't know if you've seen any NFL players yeah. post game interviews. Some yeah. of the the attire that they're wearing is right out there, right? So this is you know LA rap scene or whatever else. And he, here he is wearing this yellow plaid. It was actually Patagonia. He tells us, and, and the the commentator, someone in the press asked. You know, um, what's with the shirt, you know? And, and he said, look, I, I have two things that I focus on, being the best quarterback I can and being the best dad I can. I have no other time or ability to focus on anything else. My wife selects all of my clothes before I come to the game. You can have a conversation with her if you want to know that. <laughs> yeah, love that, love that. It's yeah. terrific. One of the other things you mentioned there was um, decision-making. Mm. And I'm really keen to understand how people can think about decision-making. A lot of the people listening to this are reasonably sophisticated investors and Mm. a lot of very sophisticated investors and money managers. Um, And and then some others who are earlier on their journey. They may have been great at the widget factory that they sold and now they find themselves managing a a big liquidity event. Um, How much is there direct correlation or can you always judge – The quality of your decision and the ability of your decision-making process by the outcome.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah. Not at all. (laughs) There's, there's so. I was hoping you're going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Talk us through that. Yeah. Sure. Um, Well, it's it's about looking at, you know, the inherent tension between things that are in your control and things that are extrinsic to your control, and being very careful on how you do judge and evaluate that. And so I think we can all relate to times where we've made a very well-informed, sound judgment, free from being pulled around by the emotion or the attachment to the outcome even. And we haven't got the outcome and we notice that we're naturally a little bit more hypercritical and, you know, um, harder on ourselves. And we sort of feel like we've violated our standard and, you know, we really, we do a deep dive and reflect and, you know, get a bit punitive at ourselves and all those things. Versus maybe sometimes making a haphazard, little bit slightly rash decision, but we've got the outcome and all of a sudden we're patting on our backs like we we're, we're. we're you know armchair quarterback and geniuses so you know it's very very important for sustained high performance again to separate those two um inherent tensions it's what did i bring to this was i values congruent aligned to the strategy use the right metrics you know the decision making if i went back in time would still be the same and if it is then i just have to hit uh, sorry I, have, I just have to sit with the inherent um, disappointment that that didn't eventuate. I, I like to separate regret from disappointment. Mm-hmm. I think they're really important constructs to separate, you know, disappointment is, yeah, I didn't get the outcome I wanted and you're allowed to feel disappointed. But regret comes from not getting that outcome, but also you've, you haven't achieved that through some faulty decision-making system. Typically, because you've been caught up in something going on with your emotions and ego, and and something. yeah, the,
0: the the thing that strikes me about this, and we've had Luke Keary sitting in that seat, you know, who, who's played, mm. you know, Clive Churchill, medal winner two times in the grand finals, played for Australia, played for New South Wales, used to high performance settings, and mm. he was here for six months, and we talk about you know managing clients' investments, and you'd see on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis, some, from time to times people. Uh, are dealing with markets or investments going the other way than what they intended to. And, um, you know, he, he, he talked about, look, I'm one of 13 players. There's a lot of variables. There's the referee, there's the weather, there's the wind, there's the opposition. You know, I can't control what they're always going to do Mm -hmm. in an investment sense. It strikes me that when you're making a decision, you're making on the best information you've got available. And there's a whole heap of parameters that are out of your control and, and you you cannot control. But similarly to what Luke was pointing out, that if I keep doing the right processes and the right things, I will inevitably inevitably be successful. And and if I'm good at this, I'll actually perform and, and, and have a good outcome. And similarly, from an investment perspective, if you make the right decisions over the longer term and the medium term, you, you will succeed. Whereas, you know, there are going to be times if if you rewind the clock, and you investigate your decision, it appears, well, it was actually the right decision that you made, even though the outcome was at this, because you just can't account for these other variables that occurred between mm-hmm. that time.
1: Yeah, what I would say to that is you'll be more consistent over time, which then allows you to honestly evaluate your decision-making or, or your talent, you know, or how you how good you are at whatever domain you're playing in. You know, it's not always a fairy tale. Um, you might not be very good at something. You might not be a very good golfer or football player or investor and that's okay. That's okay. But you want to be able to walk away and going, yeah, I just wasn't as good as I'd hoped to be, but I didn't sabotage my career. I didn't make rash decisions. I didn't make emotionally governed decisions. I didn't make erratic decisions. I didn't chase short-term because I was unwilling to sit with that, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain and what have you. So it's more of a, it's a much more honest way to then look at the variables that you can then dial up, dial down, or change. And I think in the in the finance game, you know, we're so data driven, but yet we still have a human at the seat. And I always say, can we somehow even minimise the emotional influence on that decision making, and and you be the filter of that data?
0: Yeah, excellent point, Jonah. We've covered a lot of ground here. What what do you think is missing? What haven't I asked you?
1: That's a great question. I haven't been asked that one before on a podcast. Um, what are we missing? I think looking at values is a really interesting thing to explore across any context and not tokenistically, not the decal on the wall of your business that, you know, gets redone every few years, but genuinely and deeply because the science of decision-making if you really interrogate and you want to look at lasting behavior change comes from a place of values. So I'd encourage all the listeners out there, if they wanted to really understand why do they, you know, make life decisions, um, as well as, you know, in, in the, in the business pursuits thereafter, if you truly understand how to use your values as a tool of decision-making life becomes so much harder, not easier, but so much more rich and rewarding. Because you literally have a blueprint when you wake up every day of what a yeah, towards move looks like versus an away move looks like. So I love helping, you know, institutions, organizations, and individuals um, go on that journey to really interrogating who they are, what they're about, you know, what their values are. And then how do I use that as an instrument of decision-making? Because then what we do is merely the thing that we happen to be somewhat talented at, but it's all about the opportunity to bring those values to life.
0: And how do people start working on understanding what those values are for them?
1: Mm. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of ways. There's, there's plenty of instruments out there. I've got one on my website. There's a whole, you know, but, but effectively.
0: What's, what's the one on your website called?
1: Yeah, it's just North, North, north of my company. And yep. it's just my values finder. Um, okay. And well, there's a good tool for people. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're trying to look at is, firstly, we all have values. It's a bit like personality profiling. Just because you haven't done a personality profile doesn't mean you don't have a personality. <laughs> it's just that some instruments will put some words and terms around that and you might use it for a bit of interest. Um, values is the same. Every single listener, and you know, we all have values. It's just that some of us haven't taken the time to maybe to connect, define, maybe put some language or something around it just so it's easy to reference and then do the more important work, define that behaviorally so we can use it as a tool of decision-making. Values are behaviors. They're not intentions. They're not lovely, fluffy words. It's, you know, I might love my wife, but acting lovingly is the value. Because I can be a jerk one moment and you know, nice the next, that means I, I can move very instantaneously in and out of you know values congruence. So you know for me, you know I love have got values that I really use in my life around mastery, curiosity, and playfulness. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't have values of love and honesty and integrity and you know like we we have hundreds of values, but I just use those as my main compass. And, you know, okay, I'm jumping on a flight in about an hour after I do this podcast with you. And my brain will want to have some red wine, crackers and cheese and have a sleep and create a story that, you know, I've earned it because I've been traveling and blah, blah, blah. But I've got three journal articles I want to read and that's going to feel harder. It's going to feel boring. It's going to feel like, you know. But if I just connect to that idea of, hang on, what's going to make me feel more congruent when I hop off the flight in terms of mastery and curiosity, it's... It's leaning into that and, and reading those articles, right? So life becomes harder. You've got to get out of bed in the morning and go for that run. You've got to say no to that simple carbohydrate. You've got to have that challenging conversation with that colleague. You've got to, you know, knock on your boss's door and, and performance manage upwards. You've got to maybe float your business or quit your job or, you know, there's decisions out there that every day our listeners are avoiding. But if you can actually align to who you are and the life you want to live and use your value set as a compass for that, you'll find you get after those decisions more readily.
0: Jonah, I think that's a wonderful place to leave the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful that I bumped into you on the sideline at the LACC or well, the Los Angeles Country Club at the US Open trailing cam there um, a, a couple of months ago or a month ago or so.
1: Thank you very much for your time, Jonah Oliver. Appreciate for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.